0: Amen, thank you, Travis. You can be seated. Well, good morning again, New City. Uh, We are continuing a sermon series entitled, This Passage Changed My Life. And the whole idea with this series is to give several preachers an opportunity to give voice to a passage of scripture that was meaningful to them and changed their life. And this morning, we're continuing the series uh, with Bob Schindler, uh, sharing some of his story and a passage of scripture that helped to change his life, uh, specifically from the book of Hebrews. And I just wanna give a quick word about Bob. There's a lot of things I could say about my friend, Bob Schindler, but Bob and Beth have been involved at New City for 20 years and given leadership to our Lost and Found group that meets here on Sunday morning. I know we have several members in here uh, that are your home crowd supporting you, yeah. Uh, Bob is also in our teaching team for New City Academy. Uh, Academy is something we started last year uh, where we're beginning to pour into uh, folks in our church at a different level to equip you to be disciple makers And so we started with the Old Testament last year. We're continuing this year with an additional class on the New Testament and another class that we'll announce in the fall. So that'll start in September. Uh, And even right now, if something uh, is stirring in your heart uh, to go deeper in your faith and to be equipped at that level, uh, we'd love for you to make plans to join us for New City Academy in the fall, and we'll, we'll share a little bit more about that. But Bob has been on our teaching team and been instrumental in helping us to start that And then also bob schindler and lisa giller are leading a group of folks here at new city about 40 of you um, who are giving leadership to something that's very important for our church that i'll be talking about more a discipleship operating system that will guide everything in our church so all of our programs our groups everything that we're doing is going to come under alignment to how we're making disciples and helping everyone to take a step further in their relationship with jesus and even more than that, to help disciple other people, because that's what Jesus called us to do. Our way of saying that here is helping people find and follow Jesus. And so Bob has been instrumental in that. And so it's just a great privilege for me uh, to introduce Bob to you and his story. And would you join me in giving a warm New City welcome to Bob Schindler this morning? <laughs>
1: It's a real privilege to stand before you today, and I hope by the end of the time that I share, that you'll understand some of the reasons why that's true. Uh, Let me introduce my family to you, if I could, please. On the far left is my oldest son, John, and his wife, Callie. They're three children: Levi, Jane, and Adam. They live in Knoxville, Tennessee. Next is my second son, Scott and Naomi, and their daughter, Millie, and they're actually here this morning, so I'm very glad that they're here. They're from Asheville. Then my wife of 47 years, and anybody that's put up with me for 47 years needs a dessert, a hand. Then next is my youngest son, Brian, and Hampton, and his wife, Hannah, and Cyrus, their son, is in the womb there. And then last is my oldest, Katie, who's also here this morning. I'm very glad that she's here. So let me um, also tell you that I was born in Cincinnati, but very quickly after I was born, nine months, we moved to Louisville, Kentucky, where I grew up. I then attended Vanderbilt University, where I studied chemical engineering and met Beth. And from the moment that I stepped on to the Vanderbilt University campus, I hated the University of Tennessee. (laughs) So much so that I literally threw oranges at the basketball team the first time they came out on the floor to play us in Nashville. Because I never repented of that sin, God sent me for 20 years to East Tennessee and I raised four obnoxious UT fans my wife even converted to being a UT fan. (laughs) After we graduated and got married, Beth and I moved to Chicago, then to Dallas, then to Orlando, then back to Dallas, then to East Tennessee, and 20 years ago, we moved here to Charlotte. During that time, I worked in the chemical industry. I was also in the computer industry. I then played professional golf, and after that transitioned into vocational ministry where I was an associate pastor for eight years and then I was a, senior, a church planner and senior pastor for 10 years. I burned out at that last job and because of the invitation of church at Charlotte to come here and recover, that's what brought us to, to Charlotte in 2003. After we moved here, I got involved in the ministry that I'm currently serving with, Seed Sports. Our mission is to mobilize sports chaplains and local church sports rec and fitness leaders to make disciples and redeem the sports culture. I've had the privilege of being, uh, Beth and I have had the privilege of being supported missionaries since 2008 and had involved, as Chris was outlining, some of the ways that we've been privileged to serve here at at New City and Church of Charlotte. And I just want you to know right up front that Church of Charlotte and New City and Seed Sports and this city and you all have been incredible vehicles of grace to us over these years. Amazing What what you have been to us. So that's one of the reasons it's a great privilege for me to be here. Now, uh, let me ask you, who is this gentleman? If you know, raise your hand, please. Wow, not many of you. I thought more would. Maybe that's because this picture is about 30 years old. This, this is Ted Turner. Now, if I were to ask you, what do you know about Ted Turner? Some of you may mention that he's a billionaire. He is. He's a 2.2 billionaire. Some of you may mention that he's a media mogul and that he is that. He started CNN, the first 24-hour Cable news channel, and he started TBS, the first cable superstation. You might also mention that at, for many, many, many years, he was the largest private landowner in the United States until just recently. He owns over two million acres. He has farms in Nebraska, Kansas, or ranches, I should say, from Nebraska, Kansas, New Mexico, North and South Dakota. Now, just to give you a little uh, perspective, by the way, 2 million acres is six times the size of Mecklenburg County. That means you could drive from Fort Mill to Davidson, and you'd need to go six more times to get to about the size of what his total land ownership is. Now, what you might not tell me is that he was raised an Episcopalian. And that he had a sister that died tragically when she was young. And at the funeral, according to his testimony, someone came up to him and said, well, I guess God just needed another flower for his garden. To which, self-confessed, Ted Turner said, I will never worship that God. And as far as I know, he's 84 today, he's held that vow. Now, I bring that up to you this morning because today I want to talk about the importance of true compassion. And the verse, the set of verses that have changed my life out of Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. And in those verses, I want to talk about the need for true compassion. I want to talk about the source of true compassion. And then I want to talk about the access to true compassion. So in honor of God's word, would you stand, please, as I read in time of need. Thank you. You may be seated. So let's talk about, first of all, the need for true compassion. Now, I don't think I need to tell you that we live in a broken, trauma-filled world. According to Forbes magazine, there have been over 350 mass shootings in the United States so far this year. That's over 50 a month. That's more than one a day. And a mass shooting is defined by more than four people killed in that time. Do you know that one out of every four students report being bullied during their school year? One in four girls and one in ten boys will suffer horrific abuse by the time they're 18. 350,000 children go missing every year in the United States. And the estimate is that one-third of those are trafficked. That's minimum. Just let me give you an example. That's 1% of our population. That's like this second row here every year just disappearing off the planet. We don't ever know where they are. 20% of high school students report having serious thoughts of suicide with the suicide rate doubling from the 2008 to the 2018 time period to where suicide is the second leading cause of death in people ages 15 to 24. Now trauma is not just for young people. Adults deal with challenging children, aging parents, divorce, decline in personal health. Death of loved ones, disease, greed, anger, selfishness, and injustice. Do you know that one in three women and one in four men experience some form of physical violence from an intimate partner? And all of this brokenness and trauma is lived out either in the first person by us or in the second person as we watch it on all the media channels. I just encourage you or challenge you at one point, and I did this this week, I just tracked the headlines from Monday to Friday. And I listed those out and said, this is what the world is that I'm living in. It is a broken, trauma-filled world. Now, sometimes that trauma, though, isn't so much in the violent type. I grew up in an upper middle class family, living on in a house on a golf course, raised by a mom who was emotionally abused by her father, who watched her dad physically abuse her mom as an alcoholic, and because of that, never wanting to trust men. She married my father, a passive man whose father had committed suicide in the 30s when my dad was about eight years old. Because of that, he had no real clear idea of what it meant to be a dad. And everything was great as they were raising this freckle-faced, burr-headed, redhead little kid who was very compliant until when I got to be in about fifth grade, I began to express preference. And it scared my mom to death. And so she did everything she could to shut that down with her anger. What would happen is she would just out of the blue, get mad at me for some unknown reason, go into a rage. I would try to explain to her how she was wrong, to no avail. Eventually, she would storm off into her bedroom, slam the door, quiet. To which my dad would come to me at some point and say, Now, son, your mom's having a hard time. You need to go and apologize to her which I obediently did, sometimes for days, till she would come back into my world, never saying she was sorry for anything. And embedded deep into my heart were the lies that if there's anything wrong, it's all my fault. It's all my fault, all my responsibility to fix it. That no one cares about how I hurt and that I am alone in my pain. And I lived with those lies for many, many years. And that those lies impact, impacted significantly the way I felt about myself, the way I looked at the world and the way I would relate to people. Now, I don't know where you are as you sit here this morning. I don't know about the trauma that you experienced or are experiencing now. And I wish, honestly, I wish I could sit with each one of you and just listen to your story. Because I'm convinced, for those of you all gathered and those of you all listening online, I'm convinced if I did that, there would be stories in this room that would break my heart. Because we live in a broken, trauma-filled world. You hear Chris often say, we're either coming out of a, of a storm, we're either in a storm, or we're going into a storm. And that was true today, but it was also true when the writer of Hebrews wrote the letter that we call Hebrews. Now Hebrews doesn't have an identified author and audience like the book of James that we just got finished studying. However, over the years, because of the content of Hebrews, scholars have uh, have often considered the audience to be Hellenistic Jews who were living outside of Israel, who had converted to Christianity. In their conversion, they were therefore marginalized by the Greco-Roman world they were living living in to the point that they would sometimes suffer persecution to the point of seizure of property or imprisonment. Now, the author was aware that these city dwellers, in the midst of that marginalization and persecution, were tempted to let go of the story that they had embraced of Christianity. Because of that temptation, he writes the book of Hebrews. You see, they were in danger of thinking, if God is so good and sovereign, why are things going so bad? Why isn't God showing up like I hoped he would or expected he would? Why does at times he seem so far off when I cry to him? And he knew, the author knew then, through the Holy Spirit, that the temptation was to drift from the faith. Faith. It was the temptation then, it's the temptation as just as strong today. And that brings us to our first of the three verses. Since then, we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. This verse is in line with the key theme of Hebrews, which is better. The key person or character of Hebrews is Jesus. And the big idea of of Hebrews is that Jesus is better. He's better than the angels. He's better than the prophets. He's better than Moses. He's better than Abraham. And here, he's better than the previous high priest who came before him. Now, you all remember that high priest represented the people to God. They would offer sacrifices on their behalf to atone or to make good for their sins, to pay for their sins. They would also pray and bring intercession for the needs of the people to God. And the author is saying, Jesus is a better high priest because he is both human and divine. Notice how he says, Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus is humanity. The Son of God is deity. This synthesis of his humanity and deity is what makes him a better high priest. In fact, it makes him not just a better, but it makes him the great high priest, and so the author says since we have this great high priest let us hold our confession our confession hold fast our confession let us grip onto it let us tightly grasp it. Let us not let go this idea that the story of the gospel is the best answer to the meaning of life. That from creation, God was telling this great story of creation, fall, redemption, consummation. The hero of the story being Jesus, this great high priest hold fast to that. And again, why would he need to exhort them to hold fast to it? Because the temptation in the midst of a trauma-filled world is to let it go, to settle for something less than this great story of the gospel. So you see, this is the need of true compassion, this temptation that we have to let go. Now, you might ask, or you might say, well, Bob, But where is true compassion in that verse? I mean, all I see is it says that we need to hold fast because of this great high priest. And if we were to leave the verse here, you might think it's just up to us. It's up to us to screw up the courage and the strength to to stay gripped to this gospel story. And if the author ended it here, that's exactly what we would think. But he doesn't. He, He goes on further to our next verse about the source of true compassion. And that is found in verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Notice, it begins with the word for. In the NASB and the NIV, it is therefore, therefore, because of what I'm about to say, verse 14 can be fulfilled. Verse 15 anchors verse 14. The truths of verse 15 are what enable verse 14 to be fulfilled, as I said. Now, what does verse 14 show us? It shows us the heart of Christ. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. In other words, he's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Now, the word sympathize there is a very important word because it means literally to suffer with. The author is telling us here very clearly that Jesus doesn't just feel a sort of sadness for our struggles, he feels actually everything we feel and suffers everywhere that we suffer. About what? With our weaknesses. Weaknesses is a broad term here that, that, that applies to anything that is tempting us to let go of the story, whether it's an emotional pain, whether it's a physical pain, whether it's a spiritual pain, or even the thought of a sin. Jesus is sympathizing and suffering with us at every place we are feeling weak. Dane Ortland, who wrote this book, Gentle and Lowly, who, which I highly, highly recommend, wrote a chapter on this verse, 15. Listen to how he says it here. The writer of Hebrews is taking us by the hand and leading us deep into the heart of Christ, showing us the unrestrained witness of Jesus regarding his people. Now, if we go back to the verse, you might ask, how can he do this? It says, we have a high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses because he's been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. You see, there isn't anywhere in your life that you've been tempted that Jesus doesn't get. Every temptation that you and I have experienced, he's experienced. Now, you might say, though, Bob, well, wait a minute, though. He didn't sin. How can he understand what it's like for me who does? C.S. Lewis, understanding that objection, wrote this in Mere Christianity. Imagine a man walking against the wind. Once the wind of temptation gets strong enough, the man lies down, giving in. And thus not knowing what it would have been like 10 minutes later, Jesus never laid down. He endured all our temptations and testings without ever giving in. He therefore knows the strength of temptation better than any of us. Only he truly knows the cost. Do you see what he's saying? Jesus not only understands your temptation He understands your temptation even better than you understand your temptation. He has endured temptation and gets it more than any single person in this room. And that's what enables him to sympathize with our weaknesses. Now, this reality overcomes the tendency for all of us to feel alone in our weaknesses, pains, struggles, and temptations to think that nobody understands, and in fact, nobody does. You know, men and women, you might have had a situation similar to me as my mom or my dad, or I might have been in a situation similar to what your life is, but guess what? You don't really get me, and I don't really get you. Not completely, because you're not in me, and I'm not in you. But you know what? Jesus does. You can't ever say to Jesus, you don't get it. You don't understand me. He says, yes, I do. And I'm with you, and I'm suffering with you right there. Now, can you relate back to my story and begin to understand how this passage changed my life? Remember one of those lies that I'm alone? When the Holy Spirit began to massage this passage, like kneading bread into my heart, it cast down that lie that in my struggles and pain that I was alone. It comforted me. It helped me in those times of struggle like that. This is the heart of Jesus who meets our need for true compassion by being the source of true compassion. But you know, men and women, this is not the heart that many of us if we're honest, really think Jesus has for us. We can easily believe that Jesus is repulsed by our weaknesses because of the world that we live around. Think about, think about Michael Jordan. Think about Tiger Woods. Think about Steve Jobs. Think about Tom Brady. Think about whatever the pers- whoever the person is who's excelling in their world, and you will see someone who is uncompassionate, who lacks compassion for his lessers. They drive their peers. They have no sympathy for those that are weaker than them, impatient and intolerant of them. And it is very easy to think that is the way we are treated by Jesus. The weaker we are, the more repulsed we are by Jesus. But again, listen to Ortland. As we sink further into pain, we sink further into self-isolation. The Bible corrects us. Our pain never outstrips what he himself shares in. We're never alone. That sorrow that feels so isolating, so unique, was endured by him in the past and is now shouldered by him right now in the present, men and women. Contrary to what we expect to be the case, therefore, the deeper into weakness and suffering and testing we go, the deeper Christ's solidarity with us. As we go down into the pain and anguish, we are descending ever deeper into Christ's heart, not away from it. So why is our perspective on Jesus as the great priest so important? Because he's the source of true compassion. But the author, again, doesn't end there. He talks about how we access that source of true compassion. Notice in the verse, he goes on to say, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is the ESV version, as it's noted. In the NASB and the NIV, the verse begins with a therefore. The ESV says, let us then, because of verse 15, this is what we are to do. Verse 15, now again, anchors verse 16. What I want you to see, men and women, is 15 is the anchor for 14 and 16. It is the key verse of this triplet of verses. And he says, because of this high priest who sympathizes with us, let us draw near. That's a present tense idea. Anytime we feel in weakness, we are to draw near with confidence. That word confidence is really important. It means unfettered, unreserved speech. It means I go and I vulnerably declare how weak I feel. That's the confidence I go in, that I will receive mercy, and find grace to help in time of need. Now, that order is really important, men and women. That order is really important. Let me explain. He says the first thing we get is that we receive mercy. And if I were to ask you to define mercy, many of you would probably tell me that that means to not get what you deserve. And that's accurate, but it's incomplete. When the psalmist in the Old Testament would cry out, have mercy on us, O God, or be merciful to us. Or when blind Bartimaeus along the road cried out to Jesus, Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me. They weren't asking God to not give them what they deserved. They were asking God to, in compassion, to step into that place where they were and do something about it. You see, mercy is the outer expression of an inner compassion or sympathy. So, men and women, do you see this is what the writer is saying. When we go to the throne of grace in our weakness, the first thing we receive is an outer expression of Jesus's Sympathy or true compassion, while we were in East Tennessee, we moved to a small town called Morristown to plant a daughter church of the mother church that we were involved with in Knoxville. My wife and I Beth felt the clear call of God more than, uh, to do that than anything we 've ever done. Uh, however, within six months of us of traveling there, settling there my wife went through a very horrible experience and what we would now call was a, an emotional breakdown that resulted in incredible healing, but at the time was extremely difficult. I was worried about her. I was worried about our marriage. I was worried about our family. We also had extremely difficult financial situation going on at that time, planning a new church. We also, I also felt incredibly stressed about this little church Call, uh, that I felt looked, seemed like uh, it was fragile enough that you could blow it away like the flower of a dandelion. <laughs> It'd be gone. It was in the midst of that that I began to find the Holy Spirit pointing me back to this verse, massaging into my heart this idea. Bob, the first thing you get when you come to me His mercy. And he gave me a picture of him, me walking up to him, and him putting his arm around me, drawing me into his chest and uttering very softly these words, Bob, I'm so sorry. This is such a hard time. And it melted me. You go back to my story, do you remember? Nobody cares. And here was Jesus, not only caring, he's validating everything I was feeling. Melted me then, melts me today. And that, true, that true compassion, that mercy comes in different forms now. Sometimes it's in an affirming word, sometimes it's in a reminder of a verse, sometimes it's in just an expression of love. It happened actually here, right up on that section, a couple weeks ago. You see, in the last month, that old friend of feeling lonely came back. And one morning, I was singing. Worship the, with the worship group, and the Holy Spirit just reminded me of, his, of, the, of this high priest's true compassion. And it melted me, it slowed me down, it caused me to pause, just rest there. And it's in that place I found the grace to help me in my time of need. You see, that's the way God's working happens. It's from vulnerably through mercy that we find grace. Now, if I were to ask you, what does that grace mean? You all might say, well, that's getting what we don't deserve, right? It's Undeserved favor. And that would be true, but again, that's not completely accurate. Listen to how Paul spoke about this grace in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He had a weakness he wanted God to take away, and three times it says he asked him, and God said to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in your weakness. My grace and my power. Do you see the parallel? Grace is the move of God toward a person that's undeserving, the move of God in all of his fullness that typically empowers a person. That's typically what happens when grace is experienced. It empowers. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected where? In your weakness. From weakness through mercy to empowering grace. This is the way God works because true compassion is the pathway to empowering grace. You see, Jesus isn't just a doctor who dispenses medicine to make us better. He's not just a nurse that offers compassion for us. He's this true great high priest who sympathizes with with us and then leads us to the grace we need. This is the importance of true compassion. It is the pathway to empowering grace, and it has changed my life, men and women. It has empowered me, it, or it has allowed me to experience the empowering grace to press on when I feel the temptation to quit, to settle for a lesser story. It's also, though, changed the way I relate to people. A couple weeks ago, I, got, I, got, I had a meeting with a, a sports minister that I meet with on a monthly basis. And um, just checking in with him, and he said, you know, Bob, I'm really stressed out. In fact, I'm, I'm, I might even be burned out on the, on the verge of depression. And I began to ask him more about why that was. And he, and he went on to say, you know, I just keep thinking that if only I had more resources, more time, more money, more people, that I could finally fulfill the calling that God has for me in this ministry you see in these 10 years Bob I've never felt like I'm ever going to make it I can't figure it out and I just don't think I'm enough and I asked him by the way and we said you know some things and I said when was the first time you ever felt that And he immediately went to a trauma that he experienced in high school. And we talked about that trauma for a minute. And I said, what would you say to that young boy today? And he gave some great truth about how he was, you know, a son of God. And how he was, it's okay that that happened. That he was uh, just a lot of great truth. And then I said to him, what do you think God would say to you? to that that boy. And he said the same thing, a lot of great truth and a lot of great ideas, but I noticed what was missing. There was no mention of God or him telling that young man how sorry they were that he went through that pain. And I talked about that and we went to Hebrews chapter 4 and then he, he began to talk about how he just feels at odds with God almost frustrated with him for the way that he has dealt with this, standing aloof. And we went to this idea that Jesus is pulling him into his chest, expressing great sorrow for the, the, the disappointment and the pains that he had. And he slowed down. And then I talked about, what would your 10-year-old daughter say if she came to you and, and asked you for the keys to the car and you told her, no, I'm not going to give you the keys to the car. And she would say, but, but but, dad, don't you understand? I'll suffer if you don't give me the keys to the car. It's going to be really hard for me if you don't give me the keys to the car. You're holding out on me, dad. Why are you doing that? There was no holding out on that. I'm not holding out on you. I love you and I care for you. And it clicked in his mind. The next day I got a text from him that said this. Man, I feel so much more courage today. You really helped me have a breakthrough. Praise God. Thank you. Now, y'all, I've had that experience enough to know that isn't me. That's the Holy Spirit leading a person to this great high priest, enabling them to experience the, the true compassion. The outer expression of that, that mercy, to where those people find the grace to help in that time. Now, I've seen it change me, I've seen it change other people, and I believe it can change you. Now, I don't really know where each of you all here today, where you are, but listen again to Orland when the relationship goes sour, when the feelings of futility come flooding in, when it feels like life is passing by, when it seems that in one sh- that our one shot at significance has slipped through our fingers, when we can't sort out our emotions, when the longtime friend let us down, when a family member betrays us, when we feel deeply misunderstood, when we are laughed at by the impressive, in short, when the fallenness of the world closes in on us and makes us want to throw in the towel, there, right there, we have a friend who knows exactly what such testing feels like and sits close to us, embraces us, is with us, solidarity. Now, With that in mind, it is my deep hope and prayer that you have heard the Spirit of God call you to come near to that throne of this great high priest in your weakness and openly express that to him that you might might receive this outer expression of his sympathy and find the grace to help you there wherever you're needing because... True compassion is the pathway to empowering grace. Can we pray? Father, I thank you for your word, the power of your word. Holy Spirit, thank you for taking the words and making them alive to us. Would you speak your word to each of these people gathered here and online today? Would you give them confidence that they can come to this throne and receive the mercy they long for and the grace they need. In your name I pray, Jesus. Amen.
2: You was before there was light walked across the ages of time he who made every living thing behold him he who heard humanity's cry left his throne to wake as a child he became like the least of us behold
1: for being here today. If you're new, we're so glad that you came. The mission here at New City is very simple, to find and follow Jesus. This one, this great priest who has such a deep heart of compassion. If you'd like to know more about how we go about fulfilling that or know more about just the church in general, we'd invite you to Connection Point out in the, fo- out in the, the uh, outside foyer to find out more information. If you noticed, the passage says, let us draw near. The author intended that to be a communal activity. If this message has stirred up or this morning and our singing has stirred up something in you that you'd like to talk about or pray about, I'll be down here after the service. There'll also be our prayer team members down here in yellow lanyards. They'd welcome the opportunity to support you in that place of need. Or if something else is just on your heart today, please give them that opportunity. Worship is a response to God's revelation. One way that we respond is by giving. If you'd like to give, you can do so online by going to newcity.us forward slash give or drop something off in the box in the foyer. If you're able now, could you extend your hands for a benediction? Now may the God of all mercy and grace, by his Holy Spirit, give you a fresh and deepening vision of our great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God. And from that vision, you would be empowered to go to him freely and openly with your weaknesses and experience his mercy and grace. Have a great week. Go in that hope new city. Thank you.